We are, it looks like, now that lights are on, that some people did have some Memorial Day weekend plans. I'm sorry that you guys did not. Um, we are today starting off, we chose Memorial Day weekend to kick off our summer series. And basically what we're going to do is kind of travel through the three, uh, three books, or three epistles of um, John. What we're going to do today is, I'm going I'm to just give you a lot of information at first. So we're going to set some framework up. We're going to go through the first two verses of John 1. We'll have the verses on here. Um, and we'll go through that quickly, but with a lot of info. I apologize for that. And then when we get to 3 and 4, we'll park it a little bit. And if you've been around here for a while, you know we do this. We'll dialogue a little bit. So once we get there, if I ask some questions, they're probably not rhetorical. If they are, I'll say so. Um, and then we'll just we'll wrap it up there, and then we'll pick up um, in verse 5 next week. That makes sense? Let me pray and we'll, we'll get going. Jesus, we love you. Uh, we thank you. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for the gift of life that you, uh, that you came to reveal. And I ask you as we, as we get into this series that it not just be um, a teaching on, on Sunday morning that we that we forget at rush hour on Monday or due to a deadline of what have you. But Father, that as, as John um, or, or his, John's disciples were opening up the idea of what it looks like to live in this eternal life that has been revealed in your son now, I would ask you um, that you would make that appealing to us and that you would uh, help us to live and experience that now just, just, as, they, just as they did. Father, we love you and we glorify you. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, First John. Now, what we, uh, they're, they're books titled after a person, right? They're titled after this apostle who, who wrote the Gospels. But the thing about First John is unlike any other epistle in the New Testament, except Hebrews, there's no real opening formula. There is no formal greeting. And nowhere within the book does the author give away his name? In other words, outside of some textual things, which we'll get into here in a little bit, there's no reason for us to think that John himself actually wrote this, wrote this book. In fact, it wasn't even attributed to John until I think it was 150 AD when people started kind of linking the similarities between John's gospel, right? If, if you read, and, and I'll get into this a little more, if you read the gospel of John, what you will find is it's a bit of a commentary on 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And there is this almost parallelism that went on between these letters and, and the gospel. I think one of the reasons, and, and I'll, I'll say this again later, that we have no formal greeting and we have no, hey, this is from John or John's disciples is because I think whoever wrote this book, which is obviously a we, is probably penned by one person, but it lets us know right off the bat there's this we that is talking. It's this, it's this group of elders that's talking that they didn't need to introduce themselves because they were so known by the recipients. So probably what we have are three letters that are not written by John, who was the apostle, or like Paul, the apostle who would write from a distance. But what we have are three letters that are written from 
this group of pastors that are very deep into the community and the community knows well who's writing this letter. And so I don't, I don't think the authors thought it necessary to say, oh, and by the way, this is from whoever. So how we link this to John, and the, and the reason it's important that it's linked to John is because of the similarities between and the fact that we can go to the gospel and use it kind of, as I said earlier, as a commentary. Now, when the early church started, right, we'll, we'll do a little history. When the early church started, what we know is that there was a massive church planning effort. Not, when I say that, we, not church planning effort like we have today, where somebody thought, I'm going to parachute in here, and I'm going to plant a church, and it's going to look like this, and we're going to have this vision, and we're not like that, but rather a church that kind of organically grew throughout the Roman Empire, specifically, basically from uh, Jerusalem up into, up into Asia Minor. And unlike us, like the, the book you hold in your hand, the Bible, is not a book. They're books. It's a library. What you hold in your hand with your Bible is a library, a library that none of these churches had. They had a few letters here and there, but they didn't have what we And so it's very easy to understand when you look back through history why some churches or some regions emphasized different things than other regions, why they had different rhythms than other regions, why they even had a different view of Jesus than other regions. In fact, typically, a church or a city in a certain region didn't have the four pictures that we have of Jesus. We call them the Gospels. Rather, they had one picture. Whatever picture or whatever letter or whatever gospel was written to that specific church for that specific context for a specific reason. And then those letters were passed on. But for the most part, your churches in the different regions only had this one version of Jesus as opposed to the four that we have. In fact, I'm reading a book right now uh, by a Catholic priest called Jesus Pilgrimage. And what he does is he, he synchronizes all four of the Gospels. It's a beautiful thing. And it's a beautiful book. And he just kind of walks you through the life of Jesus and his experience as he's kind of prayed through the Gospels. They didn't have that. And so what we have when we break down the Gospels, we have the first three kind of written in this order. Mark was the first one. Okay. And then Matthew and Luke used Mark's writing some years later and, and shared some information between themselves to come up with their Gospels. Now, those are called the synoptic Gospels. Y'all heard the word synoptic. Anybody know what the word synoptic means? It's a real fancy word for the word sin means same. That's why in just same or like, right? In fact, if you if you take the three the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you and you kind of laid them out, except for a few differences, you you have the same emphasis. The, the, the idea of the kingdom of God is used quite frequently. You have these parables that are used quite frequently. And the, and the differences we have that, that some people like to make a big deal about are going to be differences in, in basically memory. Like, I don't know if some of you all were here. Uh, it was like a year and a half, two years ago, we were talking, um, we were going through the Gospel of Mark, actually, and we got to the point of the Lord's Supper, and we did service very different. Um, we actually met out on the lawn of the building that we were meeting in, and we kind of, we did the Lord's Supper out there together. Now, if, if you were to, because this was a year and, just a year and a half ago, if you were to ask Austin to, to give you his account of that day and then ask me to give you an account of that day, they're going to look different. Not drastically. They're going to be pretty similar 
for the most part, but they're going to have some differences. And a lot of that's going to be the angle we saw that day from, our own personality type, how we remember things, what we, what, what meant the most to us at that point. Those are the things we're going to emphasize. So the differences that you see in the synoptic gospels are not for people who saw history differently, but rather it's personality. It's the way they remembered it. It's the culture they were writing into. But for the most part, those three books are very similar. And then we have the Gospel of John, which is, which is very different. It was written many years later. There's no parable throughout the Gospel. He mentions the idea of the kingdom of God, which was so important to the other three writers one time, and talks about this idea of eternal life or life very frequently, which is not mentioned very much in the other three. And, and John's gospel is based around basically seven dialogues or seven arguments. And what's, what's kind of funny about that are John's later disciples, um, when they, they write about his life, they write about different arguments or debates John would get in even in bathhouses. I guess it seems like an awkward place to argue, but whatever. But he seemed to do that. He seemed, that seemed to be his deal. And so the book of John is kind of architect around these, these dialogues. And so the reason that's important is because when we get to 1 John, we see a lot of similarities, especially in these first few verses. And the only way to really understand them properly is to go back to the original, to the gospel of John, to see what is being talked about as an interpretive lens. And so what we have and what we think is that John himself, the disciple, wrote the Gospel of John. And we know that he wrote Revelation. But it was probably not John himself who wrote these letters, as I said in the beginning. It was, even if it was him, he was just one of many. It was written by a we. But rather it was a people and it was a church that was very influenced by the Gospel itself. In fact, history tells us that if you went to these different regions, you could, you could watch kind of the rhythms and the focuses um, of different churches and you would say, oh, that's a Matthew church. In other words, that's a church that was built on top of the gospel of Matthew. And that, or that's a Luke church or that's a John church. And like today, like you would might go into a Baptist church or a Presbyterian church or a Catholic church, you might walk in and say, well, their rhythm's a little different or their focus is a little different or they worry about things that we don't really worry about or what have you. We see that Jesus is the point but their focus is very different. And that's all you have back then. And so what we see coming to light in the, the epistles of John, or John's disciples, are people who have obviously been trained in the life of Jesus, been discipled in the life of Jesus through the gospel of John. Now, who, who are these disciples? Who are these uh, elders, probably? writing to. John started off, here's what's interesting, John started off as a, as an elder, as an apostle in the Jerusalem church. Jerusalem, the Jews, kept giving Rome a fit, right? Between 66 and 70 AD, they kept doing these little guerrilla war attacks on Rome. Rome got fed up with it in AD 70, and they come and they destroy Jerusalem. They burned the temple down. And because to the Ro- through the Roman eyes, Christians and Jews were so 
interlinked together, they exiled all of them. John escapes to what we believe to be Ephesus. Um, I was going to bring pictures. Sarah and I actually got to go visit what we believe uh, was actually his burial spot, some of the churches that he, he saw over in Ephesus, and it was, it was pretty cool. But we, we think that John lands in Ephesus about 20 years after this church movement has kind of been, kind of been flourishing. Now, if you go 15, 20 years before John arrives, Paul in Acts 20 is kind of prophesying, if you will, to use a, a charismatic word, about the church of Ephesus. And, and Luke is telling whoever he's writing to that Paul was saying that there is going to come in Ephesus this uprising through the church where people are going to kind of begin to bring these hybrid of beliefs, these different religious ideas together and begin to try to lead people astray. He will remind Timothy of this later in First Timothy. And by the time John arrives in Ephesus as one of the elders, and by the time these elders take over from him, this prophecy from Paul is completely flourishing. It's happening. There are people being pulled away from the church, being pulled away from who Jesus is, being pulled away from the life that Jesus came to offer. And the way they're being pulled away is, is not a drastic way, right? We, those of us who have kind of, we've wrestled with or kind of whatever, lost focus or lost affection for Christ, it never happens overnight. It's these little things that begin to seep in. And kind of what we have going on in Ephesus, because Ephesus at this time in the world was a major, uh, was a major metropolitan city. It was a major trade area, meaning there are all kinds of cultures that are coming through it. We have some of the very, which, which John actually addresses pretty specifically. We have some of the early signs of Gnosticism working its way in. One of them is called Docetism, and one of them is Serinthianism, uh, I think how you say it. But it's this idea, and they're both kind of uh, the same coin but opposite ends. And it's this idea on one end that Jesus himself was not God. He's just a man. And this, this Christ spirit, if you will was gifted to him at birth. And then when he died, God pulled it back. But God didn't die. God wasn't born in the flesh. It was just a mantle that was put on this man. The other end of that that coin is that actually Jesus was God. So this is another teaching that was happening. Jesus was God, but he was not man at all. And like the Old Testament, it was just God making an appearance in the form of a man. Which if you go through the Gospel of John, John is very concerned about talking about the incarnation of Jesus, the flesh of God, right? Then you mix in that. Ephesus was was considered the guardian of Artemis, one of of the gods of the Greek and Roman Empire. And and in fact, her her big temple is is there. And so we have this... uh, the, this religion of the city, and then we have the the philosophies of of Plato and so on, all mixing throughout this city. It's this it's this perfect environment for people who would look at Jesus and say, "His way's a little hard. His way of love is a little too demanding. Surely God wouldn't do this. Things we don't do today to kind of pick and choose." 
and say, I want to create this certain religion or this sort of belief, this, this hybrid of Christianity. And this is exactly what these elders are writing into. And this is what these elders hit as soon as we get in. They don't even take a time to give an intro or to give their name. And so let's start in verse 1. It starts off by saying this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands. Better translated, handled with our hands, right? Where it ran through our hands. In other words, here's what John is saying right away. Because remember, these religions, these different hybrid ideas, they are, they are drawing people to themselves. John is saying, this is not some idea that I got in a book. This is not something I went to school for. This is not something I've learned or argued about. This is not something, this is not something that I learned from somebody who has a bunch of initials after their name. But these words that John used, touched, seen, and heard, are words of experience. John is saying my knowledge, or the elders are saying my knowledge of this is something I know intimately. Something I've experienced firsthand. That I'm in right now. And you can use all the theories you want, but you can't argue against that. Because we felt it, we touched it, we lived it. And I want to make it clear to you. We had this conversation, and I'm sorry if I step on any toes by saying this, with this family the other day, they were going, they were going through the foster system. They wanted to foster to adopt. And they said the, the, the social worker, nothing against social workers, the social worker that kept coming in to make sure everything was okay, was a person who had amazing credentials. They had uh, amazing education from some great schools. They read all the books. They didn't have any kids themselves. And some of the things they were laying down on these families who actually know what it means to raise kids were unrealistic. They made sense on paper, but in real life, they just didn't work. And so they switched agencies, and the new social worker they had assigned to them was a mom who had learned all the stuff, but her hands were dirty. She got it. And actually has helped walk these people through the point that they're adopting a child. But they got it. They knew that you couldn't reduce being a parent to theories. And John is saying, you can't reduce it. You can't reduce the life that God has called us to, to these theories that everyone else is pontificating. Because I've experienced it. And he goes on. And he says, We'll start, well, I'll start back again. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now, there's, there's two directions we can go there. Your Bibles probably have the phrase word of life capitalized as if to make us think that it's talking about Jesus, right? Like at the beginning of John where it says, 
uh, the Word of God and is referring to Jesus. Um, there, there are many people who will go that way and think that the Word of Life that we're talking about here is Jesus. Or, which is the way I lean, that the better way to translate that, and I, I think the rest of the text as we get into it, and the rest of the book as we get into it, would actually be better stated the revelation about life. There's this, there's this life that we have experienced, that we have lived in, that we are living in, that we have touched, that is available to you. And is Jesus involved in that? Sure. What he's basically saying is this is the life that was revealed through Jesus, the, the life that Jesus lived and the life that Jesus taught. I know there's a, like, what's the difference? Is that right off the bat, it seems that these different hybrid religions, these different theories are drawing these people away from the life that they were called to live now. And John is saying, I want to tell you about this life. I want to tell you what it looks like to live this life now. So let's go on, verse 2. Because verse 2 is actually an explanation of verse 1. The life was made manifest. The word manifest there, or if you, I think maybe in the NIV, has the word appeared. But if we're to be consistent with the Greek word that's used throughout the rest of the scripture and through just Greek writings, the better word to be used there is revealed. And if you go back to the book of John, the gospel of John, and you read through it, John makes it very clear, and it seems to be very important to him, to say that not that Jesus came to this earth to make something new, to manifest something that was not, to make something appear out of nothing, but rather to reveal to us a life that has always been. A life that we haven't seen. A life that we haven't touched. It's not a new life. But it's a life that has been forever. It is the life of God that has always been and is available to you now. We'll go on and say, again, to reiterate, we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you, so now he's going to tell us what this life is, the eternal life which was with the Father and was revealed or manifested to us. Let's park it on eternal life a little bit. If you guys have been here a while, those of you who have, you, you know what Austin and I think eternal life is not. But just to kick it around, what is the normal way that we view the idea eternal life? Anybody? What's a normal way eternal life is talked about? Huh? Heaven or hell? All right. Anybody else? Streets of gold and singing? Yeah, heaven. How about something that picks up after we die? Right? Something we experience after we die. We got this promise of it this down payment of some sort, layaway, I guess, when we got saved. 
And then it picks up after we die. Now, that's cool, but it's not really motivating in the life now. And the problem with that is, it is very inconsistent with how both Jesus and John, and the Jews for that matter, understood the idea of eternal life. The life that John is calling these people back into. And so, to look at this, let's look, um, let's look at the two words, eternal and life, but we're going to start off with the word life. Okay? And, and to get an understanding of what John is talking about, what eternal life means, let's, as I said, we're going to use the Gospel of John as a commentary. Let's go to uh, John twelve twenty five. Do we have it up here? Yeah. Okay. Now, most of, we, most of us know this. Our English language does a very poor job of, of translating some different Greek words, right? Like, we've, we've, most, of you, we, most of us know the example of the word love, right? In, in the Greek and in Hebrew, for that matter. There, there are several different words for love, but our, our scriptures, our, our English language reduces it to one word, love. And we do that in our life. I I play with this example. I love my coffee and I love my wife. But really, you should not even be able to use those two words, right? That that doesn't even make sense. The Greek does a beautiful job of separating what that might mean. Okay? The same goes with the word life. So here, Jesus says this. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So we're back talking about the eternal life thing. Now, if we were to translate that, the first two words for life are the same, but the second one is not. What John writes here is whoever loses his psyche, whoever loves his psyche will lose it. But whoever hates his psyche in this world will keep it for eternal Zoe. So there seems to be something about this psyche that we all have that if we are captivated of it, if we are ruled by it, if we are owned by it, if our main concern is about it, ironically, there is nothing left of it to go into the Zoe. It deteriorates. It's gone. Because it's what has consumed us. But it seems to be That if we let the Zoe, this eternal sort of life, break through the now, the present, and begin to rule and dictate and and kind of fashion and absorb the psyche, in some way this, this psyche is absorbed and transformed to live on into the Zoe. Does that make sense? Not really, right? Um, so let's, let's just talk a little bit real quick about the difference between psyche and, and, and zoe. Psyche is not necessarily the flesh, right? We, most of us know, if, if we know any sort of Greek or Latin or whatever, we can kind of figure out what that word ended up evolving into in our English language. But it, it, the, the word kind of means soul. It's, it's the seat of our emotions. 
It's what happens to us. They're kind of hard to distinguish. It's, it's what has been granted to us at birth. It's our pains. It's our hurt. It's our loneliness. It's our success. It's our affections. It's the thing that pulls us in different directions. It's what we feel. But also, if not handled right, apparently, it's the thing that deteriorates into nothingness. Because it can't live on into the Zoe if we don't let the Zoe break into the now and transform it. The idea of Zoe is the idea of a different realm of life. Not happening at a different time, but happening at the same time. It's almost like the idea, and it, these are weird examples, but it's almost like the idea, if, if we were to go outside, like right now, it's, it looks very cloudy. Right? It is very cloudy. Those clouds are very temporary. The clouds haven't made the blue sky go away. It's still there. We just don't see it. They're existing at the same time, which is a weird word to use when we get into eternal hell. But the psyche is the surface. And Jesus is warning us that if we get lost in it, if we get consumed in it, it'll vanish, it'll deteriorate, it'll be gone. But if we allow it to be absorbed into the Zoe, it will be transformed into forever. So now let's get into the the idea of um, eternal. I'm going to, I'm going to hear in a little bit, I'm going to be in Austin Evers and try to create some words. Um, if you guys weren't here for that message, it was kind of funny. Um, but sometimes our, our, the Greek makes it where it's, it's really hard to translate into the English since so we get to make things up. Um, but this idea of eternal, here's the deal. Like, well, let's go back. Eternal, we have always thought of it as, or it's often talked about as something that happens after we die. Right? But the problem with that is even the most basic definition of eternal is not only that there is no end, but there is no beginning. It never begins. It never ends. That's another way to say that it is completely outside of the linear time realm. You can't even say, when you're talking about the eternal... It has been, it is, and it will be. That's linear thinking. A better way to say it that makes my mind hurt is it is been, it is, and it is be. Mind cramp? But it is something that is always present. And so you can't even ask the question. Does eternity last forever? It's like saying, does two plus two equal green? They're completely different realms and completely different categories. But they are happening simultaneously. And this eternal life that is offered us, that John seems to want to explain to his people, 
is something that we can miss even though it's happening if we are consumed with the psyche life, the now life. Or it is something that we can experience now. Why now? Because it is now. It's not a future event. It is now. If we allow it to own and transform and absorb the psyche life. I know that doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's the best way that I know how to explain those couple chapters. So to summarize it, I would say this. The eternal life of God, the first two, to summarize the first two verses, the eternal life of God revealed in and by Jesus through his life and teachings is something that we can experience now that we often miss because we are so absorbed with the facade of now. It's almost like, like I wish I would have memorized really quick the quote that Austin gave when he opened up. But it's the depth of life. It's real life. It's real life. It's genuine life. Now, John's going to get in to explaining it a little bit more. Verse 3. He's going he's to use this language again. He's so interested in letting the people know this is not just a theory, it's not just an idea, but it's something that he and these elders are living in now, that they are experiencing now. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that it's a purpose statement this is the reason I am writing this letter to you this is the reason the elders got together and pinned this thing because we want you to get something not just understand it cognitively we want you to experience it and live in it like we are living it we want you to have the Zoe life which is, which is the word he uses here in eternal life We want you to have it now. Now. In the midst of the circumstances that you are involved in. Because Zoe is not dictated by the circumstances that we live in. It's beyond that. It's above it. So that, here's why we're writing this. You too may have, now we're getting ready to define what this eternal life looks like lived out here. And here's what's funny is as complicated as it is to explain eternal life, it almost seems like a letdown with the way John says that we can experience it here. The way we live it here. You too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's it. John is saying that eternal life the Zoe life, the way it is experienced in the here and now is not some big esoteric theory or idea, but it's participation. It's involvement with each other and with him. Now, I was reading a few commentaries on this, and here's what I find pretty interesting. And, and the more I looked into it, the more I, the more I agree is that another word John could have used for the word fellowship is the word salvation. John is explaining the idea of saved. But he doesn't use the word. He uses the word fellowship. Real quick, what are some common ideas we use for the word saved? 
born again? Huh? It happened once. Something that happened. Anybody else? How about it? It's individualistic. It's about me. Got my ticket stamped. It's what? Experience. What happens when we change that word for the word fellowship? Huh? It's ongoing. We get so, and I don't know what it is about us. I mean, it's, I don't know if it's just Westerners. We, it's probably humans. We, we got to check the box, right? I made the meeting. I made the, whatever, the deadline. I finished school. I brushed my teeth. I went to the bathroom. I got saved. Check. Done. Right? And we get so, and then we get in these stupid little arguments. Well, if you, if you've been saved once, are you always saved? Or can you lose it? And, and it's so we and Psyche, too. We're talking about different things. And, and to John, it is not something that just happened. Salvation is something that is happening now. Paul will even say this. Paul says, you've been saved, you will be saved, and you are being saved. It's something that happens to us now every single day. Anybody else? Any ideas? Did y'all hear that? Fellowship is this idea of participation. Right? Instead of I said a prayer, I knew, however, I don't know what background you come from, but whatever, however we usually think we got saved, this idea of fellowship brings to the table participation. Here's one that I won't go into very, very much, and it's kind of a hot one that people won't like to talk about. But in salvation, have we ever thought of the idea of corporate? Right, if you think about the letters written throughout the New Testament, even when it uses the word you, it's usually a plural you. All of our doctrines built on the word you is nine times out of ten, the plurality. It's a, it's a group, it's a community. So there's, there's this, this corporate idea to salvation. How about this? When I think of getting saved, I think of me and God this is to expound on a little bit what Sarah said. John doesn't seem to know how to separate the idea of salvation between my relationship with you all and my relationship with God. I mean, doesn't Jesus actually say this? Love your neighbor as yourself, right? And, and, and to love God with all of our minds. And then he says they're the same thing. And then John does is this. And I think this is, might be one of the most relevant or appealing messages in a world that settles for happiness or instant gratification or success that never seems to stay. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Some earlier translation says your joy. At the end of the day, what he's saying is that the only way we find joy in the psyche, the only way we find joy in the life that we have now is as we begin to understand salvation in the way of fellowship with each other 
Now, like I said, that's his purpose statement. The rest of the book, except for a little few segues here, is going to be John explaining to us what it looks like, the how-to, the how-not-to live the eternal life now in fellowship with each other and with God. And so, my challenge to you this morning as we close is for the next several weeks, I've, I've even got the, we've even got the outline in the bulletin. Start reading ahead, read through John, the first John. Use John as a commentary. Think through that lens. Begin to ask yourself this question this week. Am I living the salvation, the eternal, the Zoe life now? How do I know? Is my life full of joy 